Our Bibles that we are privileged to own and carry and read and learn. It's a massive book, spans over 1,400 years of human history, and throughout that great amount of text, it speaks of various ages and epochs of human history, and it also, as you well know, contains a lot of prophecy or predictions. So not only do we have 1,400 years of history covered, but someone has predicted or or has estimated that 25% of the Bible was prophecy when it was first written. So that begs the question, you know, the Bible gives us the past. So so many times when we open it up, especially in in the Old Testament, we're reading... Uh, historical narrative of what God has done in redemptive history. And, and then the Bible gives us the future, but, but it begs the question, what about, what about the present? What, what about the age we live in right now? Does the Bible speak to the, the times that we live in right now? And the answers are resounding in a thankful yes, it does. And that brings us to where we are in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus has been rejected in chapter 12 and the Pharisees have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and said that Jesus cast out demon uh, by the power of Beelzebub. And now he comes to Matthew 13 and he gives these parables to, to reveal truth to disciples and to hide or conceal truth from the unbeliever. And so as Jesus reveals this truth in, uh, to the disciples in Matthew 13... He's going to uncover some, some new truths that have not previously been revealed in the Bible. Uh, this prophet of prophets, this teacher of Israel, the ultimate teacher, Jesus Christ, is going to show his followers some things that were previously undisclosed. And particularly what he's going to show them, these Jewish men who have the kingdom of God on their mind and an expectation of what the world should be like based on this coming kingdom of God, Jesus is going to show them through parables what's going to happen between his first coming and his second coming. This has been dubbed the postponement age. The postponement age. Jesus came in His first coming making a legitimate offer of His Messianic kingdom to His own people, the nation of Israel. They rejected that offer and so it was withdrawn. The offer was put forth and the offer was taken back. And that brings us to this postponement age. He uses these parables then of Matthew 13 to reveal the conditions of the postponement age. And so I want to just step back and recast the whole chapter. Not that we've wasted any time or have been misguided at all to this point. But we want to step back and and put a different title this morning over the entire chapter. And it will be our title as we work our way through to finish. And this is the title, Conditions During the Postponement Age. Today is, I'm going to call part one, even though we've already covered one of the conditions. Conditions between the first and second coming. Conditions that Jesus reveals and describes for his disciples in these parables, for disciples then and for disciples now. Now this was monumental for them because they're still not clear on how he's going to die and there's going to be a kingdom. They're still fuzzy about this. And so as the disciples are hearing about the kingdom of God, they expect that evil will be eradicated from the earth. They expect that there will be no widespread evil, that there will be no widespread rebellion against God, but that good would dominate. And so Jesus is going to have to explain to them what the conditions will be like in between his two comings. We saw the first condition already. I want to just quickly review it before we get to condition number two today. But the first condition during the first and second coming of Jesus is that there will be varying results of seed sowing. There will be varying results of spreading the gospel seed through the activity of the Great Commission. And we see this in verses 1 to 23. Primarily with the sower, uh, with the parable of the sower and the seed that is both given to the crowd and then explained in private to the disciples. Just a couple of more observations on this before I leave it, because it is so critical that we grasp this condition of the postponement age. When you sow the seed of the gospel, you must expect that there will be different results from person 
to person, okay? From person to person, the results will vary often within the same family. How can these children grow up in the same family with the same parents, with the same teaching and turn out so different? Because results will vary (laughs) in the postponement age. Not only does it vary from person to person, if you step back a bit, you can see that it varies from generation to generation. For example, consider New England in American history 300 years ago compared to today. New England 300 years ago was a bastion of biblical Orthodox Christianity. It was the location of the preacher colleges of Harvard and Yale and Princeton. It was, the, it was ground zero for the first great awakening in American history led by Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield preaching an unadulterated gospel of the sovereign grace of God. It was thoroughly Calvinistic. But that was then. And this is now. (laughs) And New England is nothing like that. There's just small pockets of believers. So the results will vary in seed sowing from person to person and from generation to generation. And, And we could even add from place to place. I mean, consider the difference between America and Mexico in relationship to biblical Christianity. Consider the difference between neighbors. I mean, they are almost touching each other. South Korea and Japan. South Korea with a huge percentage of evangelical Christians. And just mere miles across some water is Japan with a tiny, tiny fraction of evangelical Christians. And so seeds sowing results vary. Soil conditions, and this is interesting, my last observation on this, and then I promise we're not going back to it again. (laughs) All right, here's the last observation on the parable of the sower and the seed. Of course, the ultimate sower knows the condition of the soil. But the human sower does not. We don't know. We, we sow indiscriminately. We don't know if we're sowing on sidewalk or among the briars or among the shallow soil. We don't know. And what that means is it makes sowing seed adventurous and completely unpredictable. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so there's nothing more adventurous in this world. There's nothing more thrilling in this world than to be a seed sower. Than to be one who indiscriminately casts the gospel about knowing that only God knows the condition of the soil and what's going to happen here is completely unpredictable, even within my own household, even among my own children. Right? Now, it is this first condition then that leads us right into the second condition and the second parable of Matthew 13. The second condition is this. Good and evil will coexist in the postponement age. Now, of course, we aren't shocked by that. We've seen this the whole, our whole lives. We've seen this in the whole history of the world. But you've got to put yourselves in the shoes of the, the, the disciples who are expecting a kingdom to come and evil to be uh, demolished, right? And, and so Jesus is going to show them in the second parable that good and evil, massive evil, predominant evil will coexist during the postponement age. All right, so let's read the parable. This is going to be in 24 to 30. And again, this was publicly given. And this is one of the parables of this chapter that he explains. And that's what we'll see today. So follow along, verse 24, Matthew 13. Jesus presented another parable or comparison to them, the people on the beach there that day, Sea of Galilee, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. 
And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Here is the second parable of Matthew 13. It's one of the two longer ones, and it's one of the, it's the second of, and only two that Jesus will explain. So let's just recap what we've seen here in the parable. You have a rich landowner, okay? He's not a tenant farmer. He's a landowner, which means he's wealthy. And he sowed good seed in his field that he owned. His bitter rival comes at night under the cloak of darkness, under stealth, and he sows weeds, tares or darnel, weeds to ruin the crop of the landowner. These are poisonous to humans. If humans were to consume these tares, it would make them sick. And so there's actually a Roman law against this very practice. This was not unheard of among rival competing farmers for one farmer to try to ruin the work of the other farmer. Now we learn in the, in the parable that the only way we can tell the difference between the real thing, the wheat, and the tares is after some amount of time. They must grow up together. And then when the heads of grain appear on the wheat, then that's that aha moment. Now that this has fruit, I can see that this is a weed. This uh, happens, this, uh, this revelation becomes very evident then. Very manifest. And so the workers of the landowner say, what do we do? Well, they can't pull up the tares because the roots are intertwined. And so the reapers, notice, who are distinct from the slaves, the reapers must wait until the harvest to pull them up. And then the reapers will separate them as to their identity and as to their destiny. At the harvest, we notice that the tares will be dealt with first. And then the parable has an actually, it actually has a stunning moment. It has a surprise. The parable has a twist in the plot. Normally, the non-wheat grasses, the hay, the straw, would be gathered up and fed to the animals. It would be kept to to feed the horses, the mules, the cattle. But in this case, they're going to gather up the non-wheat grasses and burn them. This is an unexpected twist. While the precious wheat will be safely stored in the landowner's granary. And that's all the unbelieving crowd has. That's all they get. It's basically, here it is, go figure it out. (laughs) You're on your own. Jesus goes no further with them. But the disciples are different. The disciples are believing. The disciples are humble. The disciples are hungry for knowledge and truth and understanding. And so the disciples come to Jesus boldly, and they come very forthrightly. They actually give him a command. Look at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and the disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. That's the name they give it. They name the parable the tares of the field. And they are very forthright in this request, which, which really, I think, even gives us some insight into their relationship with Jesus, that he was gentle and humble in heart. These men come to him and boldly say, Tell us what that means. And Jesus obliges. Now you notice in verse 36, it says, first of all, that he left the crowds. He's on the beach at the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching from a boat. The people are on the, on the shore. And this is, is both literal and figurative, I think. He left the crowds. Here we have the, the, that Jesus is rejecting the rejectors. This is important language because he's not going to explain the parables to the crowds because he's hiding truth from them. He's going to leave them and then explain it. He's going to absent them and then uncover and, and, and reveal. And he went into the house. He's gone full circle. This takes us back to verse 1 of chapter 13. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And now he goes back into the house. And this is probably Peter's house. 
This is probably Peter's house there in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. He goes into the house and his disciples come. And so now we've got a private lesson, right? We've got a private setting and it's, and it's private tutoring. And he's going to explain the parable of the tares. Verse 37, he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Now there's some similarities to the first parable. There are some similarities here, right? We've got both parables are about farming. There's sowing seeds going on in both parables. And I would say that the ultimate sower is the same in both parables. The ultimate sower is the Son of Man, is Jesus Himself. But there are two things that are very different that you must notice to understand this parable. There are two things very different now in this one. The field changes. In the first parable, the field was the human heart. But in this parable, the field is the world. The world. We'll come back to that. The other thing that is critical that changes is the seed changes. Did you notice that? In the first parable, the seed is the gospel message. In this parable, the seed is a human being. The seed is actually a person. The Son of Man sows sons of the kingdom in this parable. Very critical distinction. So I've already read it. In this uh, three verses, 37 to 39, Jesus fires off seven details of this parable. This is one of the rare times in the Bible where somebody asks Jesus a question and he actually answers it. (laughs) I mean, boy, does he ever answer it. Boom, 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 boom. Every, every detail you need to know about, which, which means if I didn't give you an answer on the detail, don't go run and take that detail and make some doctrine out of it. He didn't talk about every single thing in the parable. He didn't allude to about the men sleeping. And so we just want to restrain our interpretation to the details that Jesus said are important. The other details are unimportant. They're not for us to, to try to understand. All right, so let's just watch through these real quick, these seven details. Uh, First of all, he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Listen, the good seed does not sow itself. (laughs) The good seed does not jump out of the bag and jump into the ground and sow itself as the son of the kingdom. The one who sows the good seed is the sovereign son of man. This is so critical that we see this. Jesus sowed and sows saved people in this world of his own free will. And he does so continually. Look at the verse. The one who sows, sows, and sows the good seed, which are sons of the kingdom, is the Son of Man. I am planting saved people throughout the world, Jesus is saying. And I do so of my own free will. Now, there's always been a debate for 2,000 years about man's will. Is it free? Is it not free? There's lots of debate, lots of discussion, lots of books. We could talk about this forever and ever, right? It's a complex issue. But here's something that grates on me. (laughs) When people want to just continually assert the free will of man, I just want to say, can we at least start by asserting the free will of God? Can we let God be God? Can we let the Son of Man be the Son of Man? And ascribe to him that if anybody in the universe has a free will, it's God, not man. That it's God who can do what he wants in the heavens and on earth among the inhabitants of men, Daniel 4. Can we let God reign over his own creation? Jesus here is asserting nothing short of the fact that he is the one who plants saved people in this world. And this is not new in Matthew. Go back to chapter 11, verse 27. Matthew eleven twenty seven. all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Okay, no human being can say that. This is what it means to have a free will. This is what it means to be sovereign. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor, watch this, this, is, this ties totally in with this parable. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. What does he mean there by no? 
He means in a salvific way. Does anyone know in a saving way God the Father? Is anyone a Christian? Is anyone a believer? Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. All right, so if you know the Father, if, if your eyes have been opened, if you've, if you've had Him revealed to you as a holy God and you're a sinner and Jesus is the only one who can reconcile you and Jesus is the Savior for your soul, if, that's, if that truth has come home to your heart, that is because the Son of Man willed it to be so. He is sovereign over your salvation. He is sovereign over the salvation of the whole planet. And here we see him sowing sons of the kingdom throughout the world. All glory to Christ. The next detail he fires off is the field is the world. Not the church. There's a very important distinction here. He sows the sons of the kingdom in the world. He didn't use the word church here. This reminds us that we as Christians are scattered all over the globe by design. This reminds us when he says that we're sown in the world, it reminds us of our Gentile mission to places like Sierra Leone, to places like Chile. But we are sown throughout the world so that we might accomplish the great commission This gospel is constantly bringing back to us the reminder that the gospel is for Gentiles, not just the Jews. And so the sovereign son of man sows the sons of the kingdom throughout the entire planet. God has his people everywhere. God plants his people everywhere. Take heart this morning. There are God's people in Washington, D.C. There are God's people in Chicago. There are God's people in California. There are God's people in the darkest of places like North Korea. Is there a place more dark and more demonic than North Korea? Well, God has his people there behind those closed borders and in that wretched country. He sows, the sovereign son of man, sows these sons of the kingdom throughout the entire world. I want to remind you this morning that if you are a son of this future kingdom, you are sown in this world. I am sown in this world. You are in the world, but you are not to be of the world. That means that you cannot escape the world, nor should you try to live that way. You can't stand aloof from the world. You can't ignore the world. You can't shun the world. And you can't hide from the world. We are sown. Look at the text. The field is the world. This is where the church is planted. We are behind enemy lines. We are pilgrims and sojourners on a heavenly journey, crossing through a wilderness wasteland. And God has planted us here in this world. We have not been sown in communes. We have not been sown in ivory towers of academia. We have not been sown in monasteries. We cannot cloister off from the world. We cannot hunker down in our bunkers with our Bibles and our coffee and hide from the world. We are sown in the world. When God wants us out of this world, He will come get us. But in the meantime, this is where you are to live. This is where you are to thrive. Beloved, in the postponement age, good must coexist with evil without embracing evil. We must coexist with evil, with unbelievers, with the children of Satan without embracing their evil. Next statement, as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. You see it? The good seed are people, sons and daughters of the kingdom and of the king. And with that little phrase, he connects this to verse 43, where he refers to it as the kingdom of their father. The kingdom of their father, the kingdom of Christ, the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom. It's all the same kingdom. And we're sons and daughters of this future kingdom. What this just simply reminds us of, verse 38, that we're sons of the kingdom, that that is our core identity. 
Your core identity is as a son or daughter of God. That is who you are. You're not an American first. You're not a Texan first. You're not a Republican first. You're not a dad first. You're not a mom first. You're not an accountant first. You're not a doctor first. You're a child of God. This is our core identity in this world. We represent then our heavenly father. So important. And the tares of the and the tares then are the sons of the evil one. You've got sons of the kingdom and you've got sons of the evil one and that's it. That's all there are in the world. It's those two camps, those two categories. You're one or the other. And these tares, these imitators are counterfeit weeds growing alongside the wheat that's scattered all over the world. And this you can know in the postponement age that wherever there is wheat, there will be tares. Wherever the people of God are planted, there will be the people of Satan right alongside. This is so critical that we understand this, that we expect this. And the enemy who sowed them, the enemy who planted them is the devil. Let's be clear, Jesus is saying. I mean, this is just so plain, so forthright. He's a copycat. The devil is not original. He's not creative. He is an imitator. He is a fake. He is a counterfeiter. He's a copycat. Yet he is very skilled and he is very experienced at sowing tares. He's got a lot of history of doing this. He can sow tares of all kinds of varieties. But especially he seeks to sow tares that are imitations of Christians. He's super skilled at this and he farms year round. He, he farms 24-7. He, he never rests because there's no rest for the wicked. He doesn't take a Sabbath. He doesn't know anything about a Sabbath. He's constantly working to undermine all of the wheat and all of the works of God all over the world. Relentless, he is. In the postponement age, Satan steadily sows counterfeit Christians among real Christians to ruin the works of God. His goal is to undermine. His goal is to sabotage. He is far from bound. Far from it. Active all the time. And so we should expect, we should expect false converts. We should expect false professions of a fruitless Christianity. It should never surprise us. We should expect imitators under the broad umbrella of Christendom. Oh, how broad is that umbrella? We should expect counterfeits who will have some loose and vague association with Jesus and some loose and vague association with the church. The highway to heaven is littered with such people. Littered. Here is a huge lesson then for us from this parable. Don't ever put your ultimate faith in wheat. It may turn out to be a tear. Don't lean upon a stalk of wheat. Build your house on the rock of Jesus Christ. Wheat may turn out to be a tear. Wheat cannot support your weight. Only the rock can. Don't ever be undone by apostasy of tares. When the tares become evident, don't let that undo your faith. Don't let that rattle your faith. Expect it. We're in the postponement age. We're not in the kingdom. It is going to happen. Instead of it rattling at your faith, it ought to strengthen your faith. You ought to say, wow, I heard about that in the word of God. Wow, Jesus revealed that in the parables of Matthew 13. So often in Christian circles, especially new or younger believers, will almost crater in their faith, will be, will be devastated in their faith when a high-profile Christian fails morally. When a pastor, maybe it's someone they know, maybe it's someone high profile, when that person makes shipwreck of their faith, 
Maybe they leave the faith entirely. Maybe they fall into great immorality. And oftentimes you'll see a young believer in those situations, they'll be rattled very deeply. Well, this is a way for us to not ever be rattled by that. Because he's told us about these tares among the wheat. These tares are sown in every family. They're sown in every church. And they're sown in every community. And the reality, beloved, is that there are more tares than there are wheat. We've already learned this in Matthew. The road to destruction is broad and there are many who find it, but the road to heaven is narrow and there are few who find it. And so Jesus has already let us know that when we got to these tares that they're going to be overwhelming to the wheat. The next phrase he explains is the harvest is the end of the age. The harvest is the close of the age or the completion of the postponement age. That's the age he's referring to. And it is the harvest that ends the postponement age. In other words, it is the second coming of Jesus all the way to the earth that brings the postponement age to its completion. And the reapers here, distinct from the slaves, the reapers or the harvesters are angels. If you know your Bible, this is no surprise either because God often delegates judgment activity to his holy angels. And this harvest that is spoken of here in this parable was talked about by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Joel, among other Old Testament prophets. The harvest isn't new. The angels aren't new. What's new is the postponement age. Now, all of that brings us then to the thrust of his explanation, which is 40 to 42. Here is the real focus of the parable and the explanation. He says in verse 40, Just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age, at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. I'm telling you, He's sovereign. All right? I mean, if you don't get anything out of the book of Matthew but this, that the Lord Jesus Christ is a sovereign, deified, deity, God of very God, then you've missed Matthew. He is not to be trifled with. He will send forth His angels. He owns them. He possesses them. They they report to Him. They belong to Him. They are His servants. He will send them forth. He will dispatch innumerable holy angels. And they, the angels, will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and the angels will throw them into the furnace of fire and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the thrust of the parable. This is the the part of this text that gets the most time and attention. What just happened? The sovereign sower becomes the judge. The sovereign sower of the sons of the kingdom throughout the world is now going to be the judge of the world. The gentle and lowly lamb becomes the roaring lion because patience runs out. The patience of God is not forever. It is not infinite. It has its limits. It runs out. And here it has run out. It's run out on the world. It's run out on the tares. He dispatches his angelic harvesters to rip up the tares, to tear up the tares, and to prevent them then from going into the granary. They are not going to be stored in the granary with the wheat. They are not going to defile the wheat. They are not going to poison the wheat. They are going to be ripped up and dealt with. Their evil careers will be brought to an end at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. We see two things about this harvest. It is a thorough harvest. It is a thorough harvest. He says all stumbling blocks, all who scandalize. What this refers to are those people who were professing Christians who fall into sin, fall away from the Lord, renounce the faith, and lead others to do the same. They're stumbling blocks. They cause people to stumble in their faith in Christ. He's going to gather them up, all of them, all of them. And it's also a just harvest or a righteous harvest. He's going to gather up through the angels everyone who habitually, now watch this, who habitually or as a practice of their life commit lawlessness. 
Let me find the verse. Verse 41. And those who commit lawlessness, it's present tense, which means it's speaking of a continuous lifestyle, a walk or behavior, an activity that marks and characterizes your life. Lawlessness is to thumb your nose at God's laws. Lawlessness is to freely and willfully break the revealed will of God in the Bible and to do so with impunity. And we're seeing this unfold before our very eyes in many, many troubling scenes throughout the last weeks and months of our nation. It is to freely and willfully break God's laws with impunity. Lawlessness is the moral chaos of a person individually or a people group that repeatedly offend and break God's will. Lawlessness describes chaos, a downward spiral, an unraveling, a disintegration, a devolution. It it describes a, a scene of moving further and further away from being made in the image of God. And, and, and holding forth Christian truth to something that becomes next agnostic and, and then atheistic and then, and then goes on the offensive against God's truth. This is the pattern of lawlessness. It always leads to more lawlessness. The only thing that restrains it ultimately is God the Holy Spirit in this world. Our, our hope right now is that God restrains evil in this world. And if he stopped restraining evil, there would just be nothing but chaos and nothing but anarchy and nothing but crime and nothing but riots. And riots would come to sleepy little towns like Kerrville, Texas. (laughs) And not just be in big cities, but God is restraining evil and God has the sons of the kingdom throughout the world. It's so critical that we see what age we're in and that the Bible addresses it and describes it. Well, these lawless people, these stumbling block people are going to be dealt with but not until the harvest. Their outcome is certain, but not until the harvest. And when you plant a seed of any kind, you think to yourself, you know, the harvest, it just feels a long ways off, doesn't it? When you, when you do gardening, when a, when a farmer plants weed in a field, uh, you know, humanly speaking, it's a few months, but just, just the sense is, wow, the harvest is, is out there a ways. And so it is in the world. But he's going to deal with the stumbling blocks and he's going to deal with the tares and he's going to deal with the pretenders and he's going to deal with those who falsely profess Christ. And here's what it's going to sound like. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, what day? The day of harvest. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You who practice lawlessness. We're not not to expect a life of sinless perfection as believers that will never happen in this life. But we are to expect that we as believers and you as a believer, when you begin to follow Christ, you will no longer practice a life of lawlessness. And to say that is not legalism. It's Bible. It's truth. It's actually God's grace that a believer hears that it is completely unacceptable and unexpected for me to become a believer in Christ and remain in my sin just like the day before, to live in it, wallow in it, practice it habitually. That won't happen. That can't happen. And if it does happen, you're going to hear the words of Matthew 7. You're going to hear those terrifying words. doesn't mean we're changed by our, we're saved by our obedience. It means that when we're saved, we get on a path of obedience. So at harvest time, the holy angels are going to throw the lawless then into a place, and you've seen it here as I read it, verse 42. They're going to be thrown into a place of emotional and physical agony, a place of grief and stabbing pain and yet rage against God. 
a place that Matthew uses this word six times, a place that is described as weeping and the gnashing or gnawing of teeth. Surely those words describe for us emotional pain, physical pain, rage against God, hatred of God, terrible agony and misery of soul. And then the righteous, verse 43, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Interesting, this is a private explanation for the disciples and Jesus tags that phrase on the end for them as well. For them as well. I want to close with four ways to apply this parable. Four ways to live in light of this condition, this second condition that evil will coexist with good. Number one, number one, be decisive. Be decisive. The time is now to enter the narrow gate and to get your feet on the narrow path to heaven. Be decisive. Don't delay, don't dilly-dally, don't procrastinate any longer. Some of you have been doing that your entire life. Right up to this moment in time, you've been delaying the inevitable. You've been dilly-dallying. You need to be decisive. Today is the day to start building your life on the rock of Jesus Christ. Today is the day to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior before other people. To confess Him with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Today is the day. Now is the time of salvation. Now in the postponement age. Before it's too late. The Bible says that if we confess Him before others, God, He will confess us before His Father. The time is now to take up your cross and follow Jesus. To stop living for yourself. To die to yourself. Die to your sin. Take up a cross. Be willing to die for Him. Dying for Him spiritually. Willing to die for Him physically. And follow Him. The time is now. The time is now to totally trust His character. To totally trust that He is gentle and lowly at heart. To totally trust that His arms are wide open for you, sinner. For you who have spurned His law, for you lawless one, for you stumbling block, the time is now to trust His character, to receive His promised rest. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The time is now to wear His comfortable yoke, to put it on and say, oh, this is the yoke of love. This is a a yoke of goodness. Why have I spurned His love this long? You must ask yourself. The time is, to, is now to decisively declare yourself. Declare yourself. What are you? Who are you? Are you wheat? Are you tares? Come out in the open and declare yourself. Are you for him? Or are you against him? There's no other category. There's no other category, teenager. There's no other category, young person. You're either for him or you're against him. These are the words of Jesus. It's time to declare yourself. Are you in or are you out? It's time to no longer be the undecided. (laughs) Cast your vote. Is he your king or is he not? The time is now to state your chosen path of life. Is your chosen path holiness or is it lawlessness? Okay? Those are the only two paths. Choose one. Choose one this day. What are you going to serve? Are you on the path of holiness or lawlessness? Declare yourself. It's time to commit your whole self for your whole life to doing the whole will of the Father and so prove to be the brother or sister of Jesus. Are you in His family or not? Are you outside the house or inside the house? Okay? And I want to say to you, do it now. Do it now. Do it right now. Decide right now to follow Him. To believe in Him. And no one else. Follow Him and no one else. The time is now to surrender all that you are to all that He is. All that you are to all that He is. The time is now to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. The time is now to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The time is now to repent of all of your known sins 
Every known sin that's on your mind right now, you need to turn away from it and forsake it and hate it and run from it. The time is now to pursue being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The time is now to learn to obey all that He has commanded. The time is now to become a humble disciple maker of King Jesus, not a proud builder of your own kingdom. Again, it's binary. There's only two pathways. There's only two choices. You either become a humble disciple maker of King Jesus or you're building your own kingdom. The time is now to become decisive and intentional and a committed follower of Jesus Christ even if it kills you. Time is now. Here's one command you will never find in the Bible. Pace yourself. Number two, then be patient. Be decisive, then be patient. I've said it already, but I'll say it one more time. This massive realm of evil, it will coexist until Jesus establishes his kingdom on this earth. Until the second coming. Until he comes and wields the rod of quick, severe, perfect, instant justice. Evil will coexist. So be patient. We're in the postponement age. Be patient. The righteous will one day glow and glimmer like the sun and like the stars in the kingdom of their father. This comes from Daniel 12, 3. Oh, what a verse. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12, 3. Isn't that interesting? Those who have insight, those who understand, those who have been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The righteous will glow and glimmer. The righteous will shine. This verse, verse 43, the righteous shining as the sun, this describes our bliss in the millennial kingdom. This describes our blessedness. This describes you and me who are believers here when we enter the kingdom, putting on display through our life the very righteousness of God without interruption. No more interruptions. No more interruptions of you displaying the righteousness of God in the kingdom. So be patient. It's coming. It is coming. Number three, be decisive, be patient. Number three, be thankful. Be thankful. Now, don't, don't check out on me. You've got to hear this. You've got to hear this. God allows his rival, the devil, to sow his sons among the wheat for our good. <laughs> Everything is for our good. Everything. All things work together for good. All right? This is so exciting. God leaves the tares for our good because our roots are intertwined with the tares. And if he ripped them up now, it would rip us up. Some of them are our children or a spouse or a parent or a sibling or a good friend. And we've been planted among them and it would tear us apart if God ripped them up all at once. Be thankful for the delay of God's wrath. Be thankful for the delay of God's punishment so that the Gentiles can be saved and come in in fullness. It gives them time. And it's for our good. And then number four, and finally, be realistic. Oh, we got a good dose of realism this week. I love it. <laughs> I love realism. We are not a Christian nation. There is no such thing. There's no Christian company, no Christian team, and there's no Christian nation. It doesn't exist. It's never existed. Be realistic. All right? The roots of the wheat and the tares are intermingled. And as I've said, they're often under the same roof and they have the same last name. 
So you need to forget perfect family. Okay? Tares are often part of the visible church because the church is in the world and Satan plants his counterfeits among us, so forget perfect church. And the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is on the loose 24-7. He is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He farms year-round, so forget changing the world. High school graduate, you're not going to change the world. (laughs) Sorry. No, what you can expect, if you're realistic, is you can expect daily crime, frequent wars, shocking terrorism, widespread greed, drunk drivers, and wayward kids. You can expect slow and imperfect justice. You can expect a painful and imperfect democracy. You can expect the majority to care more about climate change than babies in the womb. Did you know that 60% of Americans, 60% of Americans are pro-abortion? You can expect the sexual revolution and deviation to continue and get worse. You can expect socialism and Marxism to be tried over and over and over and over. Expect it. Be realistic. We're in the postponement age, not the kingdom age. Now, we must oppose evil and stand against evil, not in violence, not in hatred, but as salt and light. But we never do so with the hope of a Christian nation. There is no such thing. Not in the postponement age. Let's pray. God, help us to be decisive this morning if we need to be decisive. To quit dilly-dallying and wondering and questioning and debating in our minds. God, would you give the grace this morning to someone who is sitting here who is... uh, a tear who is a son of Satan, would you give the grace for them to escape the snares of the devil, to repent and believe? Father, help us today to be patient, to know that the kingdom is coming. One day all wrongs will be made right, and there will be justice that will flow down like a river from Mount Zion. Lord, today help us to be thankful, thankful that you have delayed your wrath. Thankful that we can still share the gospel and pray for those we love. And God, today, help us and thank you that we can be realistic. We're not Pollyanna. We're not pie-in-the-sky, overly optimistic people who, who, are, who are living a life of positive thinking. We're living a life of realism because we have the Bible. Because you've opened our eyes to reality. So help us to ground our faith and to make us strong in the Lord, come what may. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.